Good morning, everyone. Good morning, David. Good morning, everyone else. That's my favorite Christmas carol, Hark the Herald. It's a, reminds me of Hilton, yes. He, he loved that Christmas carol as well. The theology of it was. All right. Let's look to the Lord for a moment, please. Father, thank you this morning uh, that we can come and look into your word. We thank you for um, this time we celebrate when you sent a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, Father, may we rejoice in knowing the savior, the king of heaven. May we rejoice this morning in knowing our sins forgiven as we've been pondering earlier this morning at the cross where my sin as red and stained like crimson was washed away and made white as snow by the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we look into your word this morning. May you speak to our hearts, and may you help us, and that we may grow in him. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're, we're doing a study in the book of Daniel. I called this because I had to try to come up with something, you know, catchy. Sleepless in Shinar. That's the closest I could get to something that would rhyme with Sleepless in, what was that movie? Seattle? Yeah, so Sleepless in Shinar, which we will all get. But dare to step up. So this is Daniel chapter 2. And uh, there we go. So I'm going to just quickly, like 30 seconds, review where we are. So in the third year of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came to Babylon the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it, and took everything he could, including these young men that we'll read of. Uh, there was uh, Daniel and, and three of his friends, and they were taken into captivity in Babylon, a long ways to go from Jerusalem. And they were just young men. They were teenagers at the time. And the last time we looked at that, and four of the captives, they actually stood out here. Uh, first of all, what happened was they were isolated. They were brought away from their homeland. They were brought away from their family, their friends, their peers. And then they were indoctrinated. They were trained for three years in the ways of the Babylonians, in their literature, in their, in their crafts, and, and really more than just an academic exercise, it was to brainwash them, to think like Babylonians. And then they were told to give something up. Come to the king's table and eat. Enjoy the delicacies that the king is going to give you to eat. And then we also see that there was confusion. They took their names, and, and up in the corner there, you'll see what their names were given by their parents. And I'm not going to go into what they meant and so on, because we did that the last time. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were given new names. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And... So all of these things had happened, but Daniel, as you see down in the, in the lower uh, right there, says, whoa, I'm going to draw the line. I'm not going to eat from the king's table. I will do all of these other things. I will go to your school, but my faith will not allow me to eat that stuff that is sacrificed to idols. 
And he stood out. And that's what we talked about the last time. Dare to, 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 to take a stand. Dare to have a purpose. It says he purposed in his heart. And so because of that, God honored Daniel. He honored him in, in three ways that we see here. First of all, he, he brought him into the favor and the goodwill of the, of the chief of the eunuchs. The second thing, he was given prominence he was, in all matters of wisdom and understanding. And the king examined him and said, you're ten times better than anybody else we've got here. Even my own guys. I'm going to, I'm, you, you're very useful to me. And then, influence. It says, and I love this last verse. I mean, everybody picks the Daniel purposed in his heart verse. But I picked the Daniel continued verse. Now you can make a purpose in your heart early on in your life. But will you continue? And Daniel did. Daniel had influence over four kings in Babylon. Daniel was an old man by the time he got to the lion's den. He was 80 years old. We often have cartoons and, and kids' pictures of, of Daniel, a, a young guy, 25, sitting in a lion's den with a bunch of lions sitting around, and, and he's reading a book usually by candlelight. That's so untrue. He was an 80-year-old man, probably bent over and hunched down, but he was thrown into this den of lions as an old man. His influence went for for 60-some-odd years, 70 years in Babylon, right up to the Cyrus the Great. So today we find ourselves back with King Nebuchadnezzar. And I, I, I want to tell a little story. This, this is kind of interesting, because I went to visit my mom this past week, and uh, last week, and, and this came up. Uh, <laughs> and I was thinking about this in, in part, of, part of the preparation for this. When I was a little kid, my, my mom sent me to the YMCA in Sydney to learn how to swim. I was terrified. I still remember the teacher's name. It was Rogers was the last name. I still remember that. <laughs> and, and he was in the water, and, and I, the first couple of times, as a kid, you get in the shallow end, you splash around, thinking, this is okay. I don't like it, but I'm scared. And then I remember this big day came when everybody else was way ahead of me because I was terrified of the water. And he stood there on the edge and said, all right, just jump in and I'll catch you. And I said, well, can't I just draw another picture of a boat because I won the prize on the, on the, on the art contest, you know, on, on water safety. And he said, no, you need to step up to the edge and jump in and don't worry, I'll catch you. Well, guess what I did? I quit swimming lessons. <laughs> <coughs> so, so I didn't learn to swim until I was an adult. I was 19, 18, 19 years old when I learned how to swim. I was scared to death. I was terrified of the water. I could not bring myself to trust this teacher, this athlete, to catch me if I jumped in the water. I just couldn't trust him. I didn't have the faith. Daniel is put in a similar type of thing. He's kind of on the, on the diving board of a crisis here, and, and he is facing his own death, and he has to make a choice. Will I jump into the arms of God and trust him, or will I just run scared? So let's, uh, let's look in your Bibles, if you, if you don't mind, to Daniel chapter 2. You see, when we talk about jumping or taking a step, we're talking about faith. We're talking about exercising our faith, using our faith, showing faith. It's a calculated commitment. You know, real faith is betting your life on Jesus Christ. 
It really is. It's not just betting your eternal life, but it's your temporal life, my life for today, everything I'm going to do now. I'm going to rely on Jesus Christ. I'm going to trust him for every little thing, every big thing. I'm going to step up. That's the challenge today, that we step up. Taking the faith that's inside and integrating it into the life that we live on the outside. It's a hard thing to do. But if you trust God, it's the right thing to do. And it becomes easier and easier and easier the more you do it, the more you step out. I remember, as I learned later on how to swim, and, and I did finally bring myself to step up and step out into the water. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't get enough of it. I remember I, I got across the deep end. I, I swam. I slid myself in. I swam across the... I said, well, if it's that easy, I'm going on the, off the diving board. And I did. And the, and the instructor said, like, we've got to do some stuff in the shallow end. No, 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 no. I just want to keep jumping off this diving board. This is great. And that's the way it is with your faith. The more you exercise your faith, the more you will act and live in your faith. Three scenes we're going to look at. We're going to look at the king's bedroom. He can't sleep. He has insomnia. We're going to look at the king's courtroom and the incompetence of his advisors. And we're going to look at the prayer room of Daniel and the captives. And we're going to see their intercession in this, in this case. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of... Uh, I'll put it up for you, just in case you don't have your Bible. Now, in the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious uh, to understand the dream. You know, William Shakespeare wrote in, uh, I think it's Henry IV, uh, this little quote, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. In other words, if you're the king, it's hard to sleep. You've got a lot of responsibilities. And here is King Nebuchadnezzar, and he can't sleep, and he has this dream, this recurring dream. Do you ever have that happen? Like, I actually had one last night, and it was kind of, kind of weird. It was like my dentist was involved, or my dental assistant, and all that stuff, and I broke this thing, and, and I, you know, it was just bizarre. But, um, you, you know, so, so he has this, these night terrors. He just doesn't know what to do. And so he brings in these guys, these, these, uh, these, these fellows that work for him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was a really, like, not a guy who would scare easily. He was a cruel, cruel king. In fact, we, we, we do read of Nebuchadnezzar. His, he's the oldest son of Nabopolazar, was his, was his father. Nabopolazar founded the Babylonian Empire. And for two years, he was co-regent with his father. So his father said, I'm going to train you. And then, then he died. And his name means Nabu, protect my son. And Nabu was their god of wisdom. So here's Nebuchadnezzar. His name means, oh god of wisdom, protect my son. And he has no wisdom to understand this dream that he's having. So then he, he was so cruel. I mean, he, he did things like he killed King Zedekiah's sons in front of him before he took him out of took him captive out of Jerusalem. And then he gouged his eyes out so to ensure that the last thing that he saw was his own sons being murdered in front of him. 
He built a fiery furnace to throw people in who would not worship him. He was a very, very cruel man. But yet he's troubled by these dreams. Some say he was temperamental. He was 90% temper and 10% mental. He was, he was troubled. He was disturbed. He was a very, very wicked, cruel king. And God sometimes, when he wants to speak to people, will come and speak through dreams. He'll use dreams in scriptures. We read that. Some examples. Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. And then Joseph and Mary. And also if you go back to uh, Jacob uh, in Genesis chapter 28. And Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 41. So throughout scripture you'll read of God using dreams to speak to people. To get their attention. And sometimes God tries to speak to people when they're awake and they just don't hear it, so okay, I'll, I'll disturb their sleep. And I, I, I mean, I remember times in my life I'd hear the gospel and I would reject it and I'd say, no, 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 no. And I, I remember just not having a sleepless night. I would, I, I would just, the Lord would just bring terrors to me at times. And, and I wouldn't get any peace because I'm thinking, I've got to settle this matter with God. I'm in a precarious situation. So Nebuchadnezzar is no different. So here he's having this dream, and he has no wisdom what to do. So now let's go. That's his bedroom. Now let's move to the king's courtroom. Sorry for the very small font. You should be bringing your Bible. Um, now we, we read in chapter, uh, verse 4. It says, Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dreams to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. I can almost hear them saying, Tell the dreams to your servants, and we will give you the interpretation. Like This is just like a regular sort of thing. This is what they did. You tell us the dream, we'll make something up. You know, that's, and the king replied to the Chaldeans, The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation... Here comes the cruelty. You will be torn limb from limb, and your houses made into rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time, said, Let the king tell the dream to his servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you are bargaining for time, inasmuch as you have seen that the command from me is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream that I may know uh, that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who could to declare the matter for the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who would declare it to the king except gods whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders for, to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked, at Daniel, or they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. You know... There's a list of people that are mentioned in this. There's, there's the Chaldeans, there's magicians and astrologers and sorcerers. This is, this is the, 
These, these guys were all known for, for telling the future and for, uh, for their occult practices. This is the cream of the occult crop here. It's like, it's like going to a, a seminar at a New Age bookstore or something. I mean, it's just like this is the cream of the crop of, of, the, of the occult. They're here. And they're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and he says, all right, you guys can tell the future. Tell me, what did I dream last night? Now, if I did that to you, now I, you guys could cheat because I told you my dentist is involved. But if, if I told you, tell me what I dreamed the night before last. Is there anybody here who could tell me that? Not a person. And so here are these guys who claim to have all these great powers, claim to be able to tell the future, claim to be able to have insight into all of these things. And he says, simple, I had a dream. Tell me what it was. Uh, no, you tell me the dream and I'll tell you what it's about. No, no, no. You tell me the dream. No, no, no. You tell me the dream and I'll tell you what it, I'll make something up and tell you what it's about. No, no. Well, I'm going to chop you into little pieces and I'm going to tear down your houses. So they're really up against it at this point in time. Now, these guys are really, I mean, the, the stuff that they practice, the Chaldeans, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, they, they claim to have all this power. They claim to, to, to dabble in all of these things. And, and, and we look at that and say, oh yeah, well, I mean, sure, that's, that's back in Babylon, that's 500 B.C. You know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a, or 600 and something B.C. It, it, it's, that's not today. Well, now you can't get stats on Canada. That's, that's one thing I've found is when you go on the internet and try to find stats, they're all U.S. But here's something interesting. This is fairly recent. This is in America, and we're probably worse. 51% of people say they believe in ghosts. 51. Sam stayed in a hotel with a ghost two weeks ago. 31% believe in astrology. 27% believe in reincarnation. So, of those who believe in astrology, 70% of them alter what they do that day based on the horoscope they read. And you say, well, how many, I mean, that's, that's small, that's just a little number. Uh, no, it's actually 125 million people in the U.S. 125 million people alter what they do that day because they read something in the newspaper that was made up by an astrologer. So, this stuff is bizarre, and it's in our world today. It's, 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 it's no different. A Gallup poll, okay, the first one was a Harris poll. This is a Gallup poll. It says that at least 10% of evangelical Christians believe in astrology to some degree. That's disturbing. That's concerning. I'm just telling you that because it's, it's a fact. It's, it's the truth, and it's a very dangerous place to go. It's evil, it's wicked, and it's of Satan. But it also tells me something else. That there's a deep spiritual hunger in people. People want to know about spiritual things because there's an emptiness in their life. But they're turning to the wrong thing. You see, Jesus Christ is the answer to these things. Faith in Christ alone is the answer to life's questions. Faith in Christ, the Word of God, will give you the answers to life's questions. A horoscope won't. It's a made-up thing by an astrologer. The person who made up that horoscope that you'll see on page whatever of the paper tomorrow, 
is no different than these magicians and conjurers that stood in front of Nebuchadnezzar and he said, tell me my dream. Well, come on. <laughs> you tell me the dream and let me make something up. Get it? That's the same person who's put that horoscope in the newspaper. Don't fall prey to, that, to those things. The word of God is the only thing you can trust to guide you in your life. So, what happens here? Well, first of all, I think I have a slide here. It rattles the faith of the king. He's he's thinking like, what in the world is this all about? What is, I, I, I used to believe in all of these gods and I believed in all my advisors, but they can't seem to answer the question. I can't put my faith in these guys anymore. I mean, they're, they're good as dead to me because they just can't answer my questions. What am I to do? And then the second thing is he starts to think about the future. Now, I think, I think that's a good thing. You know, a lot of people today don't think about the future. A lot of people live for right here, right now. And they don't think about the future. They don't think about what could happen in the future. They don't think about eternity. And you're going to spend far more time in eternity than you're going to spend here. This is so fleeting. This is so small. And we talked about this at the Bible study on Friday night. That, and I confess, I'm a creature of comfort. I like my stuff. I like to have everything comfortable and going along the way it always has gone. But I had, to, I had a doctor's appointment this week, and, and, and you're, you're brought in touch with the fact that I'm getting older, there's stuff breaking down, there's stuff that's just not the same, and never coming back to the way it used to be. And we all will face eternity. But we think and, and spend our time preparing for right now, for the next meal, and that's it, we don't think beyond that. You know, there was a man in, in the scriptures that, that Jesus spoke about, and in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, he told of a very wealthy man. He had a lot of goods. He had them all stored up. And his solution was, I've got too much. I've got so much, but I just need a little bit more, so I'm going to build bigger burns. And then finally, I'm going to retire. I'm going to just take my rest and set back and say, wow, look at what I've accomplished on this pile. And you know what happened? Death came knocking that night. And he died before he had it all done. And Jesus Christ himself, red letters in my Bible, said, fool, fool is forever written over that man because he lived his life for right now and he did not give a thought to eternity. And, and my, my warning to you is do not live your life for today. Live thinking of eternity. Prepare for eternity. If you have not prepared to meet God, you need to prepare today. You need to do that right now, today. Jesus Christ made the way so that you can be prepared for eternity with him. He died on the cross, took all your sins, that you can be forgiven, and you can sit back with assurance that my future is secure with God. Nebuchadnezzar started thinking of eternity. Another story is told many years ago of a Baptist preacher. His name is George Turret, or Truett, Truett, I think it is. He was a pastor in, in Dallas, Texas, and in the, uh, in the 30s and 40s. He, he went out and he had supper one night with a, with a very wealthy oil man. 
in Texas. And, and they finished supper, and the, and the man took him out into, just out into the field, the back 40, as they call it. And he said to Mr. Truett, he says, take a look around you. As far as you can see that way, I own it. Look this way, and this way, and look this way. I own all of that. Everything you see, I own it. And Pastor Truett comes up and he puts his arm around the man and he said, how much do you own in that direction? You have a lot of things stored up all around here. But what really matters is what do you have there? And if the answer is nothing, you have nothing. I would encourage you this morning, prepare to meet your God. Prepare for that day. It's the most important thing you can do. If nothing else, if you don't remember anything else today, remember that. You need to prepare for eternity. The second thing that this did was it revealed the fraud of the Chaldeans. They really couldn't do anything. They couldn't deliver the goods. Oh, king, live forever, they say. Tell us the dream. Let us make something up. He caught on. He understood. These guys are fraudulent. And so now he sends a decree out. All right, I've, I've, I'm done with these guys. Kill them off. They're useless. That's kind of the way Nebuchadnezzar liked to deal with things. And then they come to get Daniel. And that changes things. Now, I don't know about you, but Daniel now has a choice to make. It rallies their fervor when they find out what's going on here. Daniel has a choice to make. I can run for the back door. That's probably what I would do. Arioch, this guy is showing up to, to take my life and, and all, all because the king has had a tantrum. Yikes, I'm going to hide under the floorboards. I'm going to run out the back door. I'm, I'm doing something. I've got to get out of here. Daniel doesn't do that. Let's read. In uh, verse 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's commander, for what reason is the decree from the king so urgent? Like, okay, you're going to kill me, but do you have to do it today? To put it in, you know, more terms that I understand. Then Arioch informed Daniel about the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him more time in order that he might declare the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, about the matter, that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound hidden things, and he knows what is in darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we have requested of you. 
you have made known to us the king's matter. Very interesting. Daniel doesn't panic. He doesn't just run off. He doesn't, he understands that his life is, is on the line here. Arioch, the chief bodyguard, has come to kill him. And he just comes to him, it says, with, with discernment and, what's the words? Oh, it's right there. Discretion and discernment. He doesn't blow up at the guy. He doesn't, doesn't have a panic attack. He just says, hmm, let me go talk to the king on this. I'm sure we can, we can work a little more time. Daniel answers with wisdom and poise. And, and Proverbs 15 says, a soft answer turns away wrath. I mean, imagine, he's coming to kill the guy and he, he delays. He says, no, I, I'll, I'll delay right now. So the sleepless king, he goes, here's this serene and calm captive, trusting in the Lord. A contrast between the two of them. You know, Life makes a big difference when you know the one who holds your life in his hands, doesn't it? When you know God, when you know and trust the one who holds your very life in his hands, it makes such a difference. So, these captives, they step up. First of all, They put their faith on the line. It says in verse 16, Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might talk to the king about his interpretation. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, just, like, just for fun, killed people. Yet Daniel had such trust in God, such poise, that I can go and take on a worldly king because the God of heaven will look after me. Daniel knows I'm going to die anyway if I don't. So if I go and take on this task, God will look after me. I'll trust him fully. The, the first thing he does is he understands that I'm putting all my eggs in God's basket. I'm putting all of my trust in God for this. This is not of me. This is not something that the king is going to do for me. This is, this is God is going to look after me. One person said putting faith, or faith is putting all of your eggs in God's basket and then counting your blessings before they hatch. I like that. Uh, just because it's so smart alecky, it was probably James McDonald. Um, so that's what you see Daniel doing. He steps up and puts his faith on the line. Second thing, they put their faith in the Lord. Huh. I gotta learn how to use these things. They put their faith in the Lord. It says then in verse 17 and 18, then Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter that they might request compassion from God of heaven concerning this mystery. Here's what I like about these guys. Prayer is their first resort. Prayer is their first resort. So point number one, think about the future. I'm just saying if you wanna go away today with only two points in your, in your mind, here's the second one. The first one was think about your future. The second one is make prayer your first resort. How often have I said to people, and I confess this, there's not much more I can do but pray. Oh well, we can only pray for them. As if like, oh, I know it's a couple of crumbs on the floor, but let's, let's just offer some prayer. No. Prayer is their first resort. I am so thankful for God's people who look at it and say, I don't think that way. I don't think all I can do is pray. They say, hey, 
We can pray about this, and then let's start worrying about it. Let's pray first. Let's think about prayer. And you know what? Christians, we do not take prayer seriously. We do not use it as a first resort in our life. And why do I know that? Prayer meeting has three people sometimes. Prayer meeting has five people sometimes. Are we taking prayer seriously in our lives? It's, it's, it's the oil in the engine of the church. It is what keeps us going. It is what opens our relationship with God. We can boldly come, approach the throne of God, talk to God, and speak to him. But we don't do it. I, I confess, there's times when I think, oh, I'm finally at the end of it. I can't handle what's going on in my job. Oh, yeah. I didn't pray for the last three weeks that I've been anxious about this. I need to pray about this. Last resort. Okay, maybe God's interested in this. No. I'm facing this. Let's go to God first. Let's see what he has to say about it first. Let him bring that calm into my heart. Let him help me to deal with these things. But so often, we treat it as it's, it's, it's a last resort, last ditch effort before the plane goes into the water. Let's, let's try one more time. We'll pull on the stick of prayer. Maybe see if that'll pull it up. And that's a hard, ridiculous way for us to live as Christians. It just makes life harder. We need to go to God first. Prayer is our first resort. Now, I'm going to conclude with this. Your prayer life is directly proportional to three things. Three things will affect how your prayer life works. Number one, your perception of prayer. Is it just mumbo-jumbo that you just offer up? Is it just ritual? Is it stuff you memorized as a kid? Now I lay me down to sleep, blah, 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 blah. I had, a, I had a boss one time who, who called me into his office and he said, you ever get asked to say grace? I said, yeah, all the time. Really? Yeah. He said, huh, happened to me not too long ago. I said, really? He said, yeah. So he said, now, I've got a little card. <laughs> and I've got grace written on that side and I've got a Protestant one on that side. He said, so if I'm ever asked again, I'm good. And I'm thinking... Okay, I, I just kind of do it off the cuff, giving thanks for what's in front of me, you know. And he said, really? Wow, you're comfortable with that. I said, yeah, 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 yeah. But so many people approach prayer that way. It's just a kind of, oh yeah, it's time to pray. And, and sometimes we go into our little prayer voice, and, and it's just repeating the same words time after time after time. What's our perception of prayer? It's the power of We're asking God to bring his power and work into our lives, into the lives of other people, to fix things that are wrong, fix things that need to be fixed, to to thank him for the things that he has done, to bless him for all of the blessings he's done. This prayer of Daniel, read it over. When you go home, read this prayer over again. It's a beautiful prayer. He is so thankful to what God has done. He, He praises God. Just think of it, God who removes kings and brings kings into places, who's made all things changes times and epochs. Just read that. That will bless you. Now you know who you're going to with your prayer. So it's your perception of prayer. The second thing, and I kind of hit on this right now, so that means I'm getting closer to the end, your perception of God. If, you, if, you, if you're thinking, well, <laughs> I take this to God, but I mean, is he, is he mad at me today? Is he in a good mood or a bad mood? Is he, like, is he really interested in my little problem? 
And sometimes we are afraid to approach God because of these things, because they may be tainted by the way our own dad, or me as a dad to Sam, have, have approached things. Uh, I don't know if I want to talk to him today. He had a pretty bad day at the office. So, but God does not have a bad day at the office. We can go to God anytime. We don't have to worry about that. He wants to hear from his children. He wants us to come boldly and approach him and to speak to him. And the third thing is your perception of the problem. Sometimes we hold back on praying because we think, you know, this is so small, I'm going to have to handle this myself. Uh, God can look after cancers and job losses and things like that, but getting along with my wife or my neighbor, I mean, that's stuff I've got to work on. That's stuff I have to take care of. No, God wants it all. God wants to deal with every part of your life. This verse from James is a wonderful verse. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. doesn't say what it's about, does it? It doesn't say if it's a big thing or a little thing. But the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's much power in prayer. Very much power in prayer. So your perception of the problem, going backwards, your perception of God and your perception of prayer will all come into play as to how you pray. And you know, God wants us coming to him often. I mean, it's not much wonder he brings heartaches and trials into our lives because that's when we're vulnerable enough to come to him. And sometimes, and I know there are people here who are going through very, very difficult and hard things. Very difficult things. And you're thinking, why is God bringing this into my life? What have I done to bring this on? Sometimes it's God wanting you to depend on him. Sometimes it's God wanting you to come to him and say, I'm at the end of my rope, I don't know what to do. Like Daniel, his life is done. But I need to come to God and I need to talk to you right now, God. I can't handle this, this is way too big for me. This problem is beyond me. I'm, I, I know I'm coming as a last resort, but I'm coming to you. And you know what, he will answer you. He will answer you. Stay in his word, stay in touch with him. Approach him, talk to him. Finally, and I don't know if I have a slide on this. Nope. These men did two things. They stepped up. They stepped up to talk to God about men. They interceded on behalf of those around them. They started praying for the situation that they were in. And the other thing they stepped up and did was they talked to men about God. That's evangelism. We're coming up to the time of the year when people are actually open to us talking to them about God. We're coming up to the time of the year when you can actually mention Jesus Christ and not be laughed and scorned off the face of the earth. Christmas is an opportunity. So what we need to do, we're going out next week, Lord willing, and passing out invitations for people to come here. We're going down on Spring Garden Road by the end of that week and we're gonna pass out invitations for people to come to Jesus Christ. We're gonna give invitations on the street, one-on-one, and to the people in general. But here's what we need to do first. We need to talk to God about men before we talk to men about God. 
We need to be praying for these things. We need to be praying for those tracts that are given up. We need to be praying for the people that we're going to encounter, the hungry souls that we, we see in our land, the people who have so much troubles in their lives. And it's all because of sin and they're lost. And they need to be saved. If we don't pray before we go, if we don't talk to God about men, then you know what? We will have no effect talking to men about God. So let's be praying for our outreach. Let's be praying as we go and talk to people. I hope in this little account that we read this morning that we can get those lessons from this. The importance of prayer. One has said that here's a secret. If you can bow before God, you can stand before men. If you can bow before God, you can stand before men. The boldness with which these men approached the God of heaven and the men on earth is amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that we can learn so many lessons from from these ancient words. We thank you, Lord, that you have recorded this history from thousands of years ago. And it's relevant today, right now, to us here at Northbrook Bible Chapel in 2016. The things that we have written written then are written for us today. I pray that you'd help us to to be bold in our approach to prayer, to coming to you. Help us to have the right perception about you and about prayer and even the problems of life. Help us, Lord, to be people who pray for people. Help us to talk to you about men and women and children. To intercede on their behalf. And then help us, Lord, to be bold to go out with the message of the gospel. Sometimes we think, oh, I'll I'll lose my job if I do this. Or my neighbor will hate me. But rather, Lord, prepare their hearts and open the doors, make the opportunities for us. That we know that with complete confidence and comfort we can come to difficult people and talk to them about Jesus Christ. And I also pray, Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who has not yet come to Christ, They have not thought of that future time when they will meet you, that today will be the day that they will see that you sent your son to die for them and that they can have life eternal beginning right now. We ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.